Have you ever taken a personality test? Well, those do more harm than good. Listen to find out what I mean. Welcome to Blair Radio, where every brand can be heard. Now, the voice behind the mic, James Shannon. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 25 of the Blair Radio Starts Your Business and Be Heard podcast. I am James Shannon, and today we have another awesome episode. Remember all those personality tests that are designed to tell you about yourself? Well, we are going to talk about those today and the harm that can be done from them. In fact, a personality test almost ruined the life of today's guest. So uh, here we go. His articles have been read millions of times. And as the number one writer in the world on Medium.com, over 400,000 people have subscribed to his newsletter. Today's guest has a PhD in organizational psychology. He's an author, speaker, husband, and father of five kids. He has written several books with his latest being Personality Isn't Permanent, a book that debunks a lot of the common wisdom of what a personality is, and it explains why personality tests like Myers-Briggs and Enneagram are non-scientific and harmful. And if you're interested in growth, development, and letting go of the past, then his book is perfect for you. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Benjamin Hardy. How are you doing? Doing awesome, man. <laughs> That's great, great, great. I want to dive right in into the book and everything, but first I want to know, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Do you always want to get into this or what was it as a little boy? Uh, definitely not. <laughs> uh, I was definitely not thinking I would write books on psychology. That's for sure. You know, I was a very imaginative boy. I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. So like, I remember playing basketball outside my house and pretending to be like Michael Jordan or like, you know, like, you know, I remember just shooting hoops and pretending to be people. I don't know if I knew what I wanted to be. I didn't spend too much time thinking about that. I was kind of a playful kid. When I was a teenager, I really wanted to be a professional snowboarder, to be honest with you. I, oh. you know, growing up in Utah, there's so much snowboarding. And so I was, I took that really seriously for a long time, but I, I didn't have career goals or anything like that. My parents got divorced when I was 11. It was really traumatic. And like, I didn't really think about the future that much. I was kind of in survival mode. So I remember taking like a, you know, one of those personality tests when I was like in like a junior or senior year and the ones that like are supposed to tell you like good career fits for you. I have no clue what that said, but no, definitely was not thinking I would write books. That idea came to me when I was doing a church mission at like age 20, when I was reading all sorts of books and I was going through a lot of transformation myself. I, I thought this could be interesting like to write books. That was around like probably age 21. No, you mentioned those personality tests. I remember taking one when I was in high school and just like you said, I don't remember what it said, but I do remember being surprised. I was like, I don't even like that. I'm trying to think what was it? Cause it was like a detective or something like, I don't think it was even that. It was something that I was like, that's not me. I think honestly, mine said something like plumber or something ridiculous. <laughs> like, I'm telling you something straight up ridiculous. I was like, what the freak? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no sense. <laughs> Speaking of personality, what are some of the common myths about personality? I think common wisdom is that your personality is innate. It's it's who you are. You're born the way you are and you are going to always be that way. Personality is believed to be inflexible, meaning that it's not something you can really change. If you're an introvert, you could not become an extrovert. You kind of are who you are. 
And so because of those realities, you know, and, and mostly the idea that personality comes from your past. So if you really want to understand yourself, you've got to look to the past to figure that out. Because of all that, the, the concept is that you've got to figure out who you are. You've got to discover yourself. You've got to go on a self-discovery path so that once you finally figure out who you are, you can then build your life around your personality to cater to your natural tendencies or whatnot. So this is why personality tests are so popular, at least type-based personality tests. Those are kind of the fast food of science where like they're overly categorized. They're really kind of cheap plastic. You know, there's good scientific tools out there for measuring things like grit and like intelligence. I mean, there's great tools, but kind of the more popular ones, the Myers-Briggs and Enneagram, those are not good science and they're kind of just cheap plastic when it comes to viewing people. I mean, those are kind of some of the core myths that just have nothing to do with the science and really are not reflective in how people work. To me, it kind of leads to mediocrity where you're just looking for yourself and then uh, you overly label yourself and then you spend your whole life defining yourself a certain way and limiting your goals in life. And it kind of stunts your growth. It's basically a fixed mindset. For people that don't know what the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram are, can you explain what they are and why those type of type-based tests are unscientific? Absolutely. So personality testing has kind of become a $2 billion industry. And Myers-Briggs is the most popular test. It categorizes people into one of 16 types. Uh, I don't really know how many types Enneagram fits people into. Do you know that one by chance? No, to be honest with you, I've heard of the Myers-Briggs, but I've never heard of the uh, Enneagrams. I don't know really anything about it. Yeah, Enneagram is super popular these days. DISC is a really popular one for business. And DISC, I think, puts people into four categories. The color code is a test that I took in college. And I tell the story in the book about how my wife almost didn't marry me because of the score I got on that test. Wow. So yeah, personality test almost ruined my life. (laughs) Seriously. But uh, yeah, so these tests, actually in 2019, Facebook had to ban these kind of tests because people were literally almost 100 million people gave away their private information to take, take these tests. On Facebook, you'll see ads you probably don't anymore, but you would have like a year ago where there was all sorts of personality tests, like what superhero are you? Or like what Disney character are you? Or like what fish are you? Like, you know, people just make these kind of weird assessments to categorize people and people really enjoy them. People want to have self-discovery. They want to know more about themselves. And these tests claim to give you self-discovery. They claim to teach you things about yourself that you couldn't otherwise know about yourself. I'll kind of explain from a scientific perspective why they're not that great. But more importantly, I'll kind of explain why they're not good for your mental health and kind of why they trap you. And they literally stunt your potential. But kind of really simply, they're bad science because like, in order for something to be scientific, you know, and I, I I was surprised going through my PhD, all my professors told me tests like Myers and Briggs are bad, bad science. They're just terrible tests. For one, in order for something to like be good science, it's got to be valid. You've got to actually be studying what you claim to be studying. Your tool's got to actually be gathering the information you think you're gathering. The second concept is reliability. You need to consistently get this, you know, similar scores. Um, The challenge with personality tests, like the ones I'm describing is that the people get totally different scores all the time based on how they take the test, based on when they take the test. There's a lot of studies, for example, that show like you, you will get different scores on these tests based on who's administering the test. You know, if you take the test on, online, you'll get a different score than if you're taking it in a classroom. Like, like there's just so many variables as to why people take these tests. But also 
at this point, there's been a lot of research studying people over time. So like people literally 50 years ago took a bunch of personality profiles, you know, their test on like their creativity, their, you know, their confidence and stuff like that. And they were tested again recently. So the, the, these people were tested 50 years ago. And then recently they were retested on these same dimensions, you know, on creativity and stuff. And also they had people who were really close to them kind of share their thoughts on these people. And none of them were anywhere close to who they were 50 years ago. Like basically the wow. idea is, is over your life, you're not going to be the same person. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. Like you're not going to be the same person you were when you were 14 as you are when you're 70. That's just obvious. But there's been a lot of recent research and I would point your listeners to a TED talk. It's six minutes long. It's called the psychology of your future self. And it explains that like, if I were to ask you a question, and this is what Dr. Gilbert asks people, he's a Harvard psychologist, but like, I'll just ask you, are you the exact same person you were 10 years ago? Not even close. Yeah, exactly. So that right there is the most common answer. Um, but here's what's really interesting. So most people, they can look at who they were in the past and say, I'm not the same person. And that's actually a good thing. And it's also like important to have empathy towards your former self. Like you're not the same person. You can make better decisions probably than they made. You've got different knowledge and different perspectives and different goals. The weird part though is, is that most people, when Dr. Gilbert asks them, do you think you're going to be just as different in 10 years from now? Most people say no. Most people think that who they are today is kind of mostly who they're going to be we tend to think that the person we are right now is kind of who we are. One of the things he says is that human beings are works in progress that mistakenly think they're finished. So we kind of think that who we are right now is who we're going to be. And one of the reasons for that is because we can speak in really definitive terms about ourselves. We often label ourselves. In psychology, you call it, we call it identity narrative. But basically, your identity is based on how you describe yourself. And most people, when they're asked to describe themselves... They explain themselves based on the past and they maybe even use pretty definitive terms. Like I'm an introvert or like I'm bad with people or I'm not creative or, you know, like we use pretty definitive terms in how we describe ourselves mm-hmm. and that's pretty bad for growth. And so one of the negative aspects of these tests is that they do give you a label. They categorize you as a type of person. They literally create a category for you and you're not put into that category. And if you take it seriously, then that label becomes an aspect of your identity. And when something becomes an aspect of your identity, you you kind of hold it sacred because it feels personal and then you seek to defend it and you seek to confirm it. And so what you end up doing is, is you then tell people about your identity. And when you tell people about your identity, you solidify it, but also you become very inflexible to anything outside of your identity. So if you think you're an introvert, as an example, you probably wouldn't see yourself as an extrovert in the future. And you probably wouldn't try things that are social. You'd be probably inflexible. Anything that's viewed as outside your identity you don't really feel resonant with it. You don't want to try it. It's not natural. And so kind of pulling this together, there's a lot of research now from UCLA from a guy named Hal Hirschfeld. He basically talks about how it's impossible to make good decisions in the present unless you know who you want to be in the future. I don't know if he'd use the word impossible. Actually, that's kind of my word. But basically, he he says that it's really good for decision making to basically have a future self in mind. You have to know who you want to be in the future in order to make good decisions in the present. Like, think about it. If you don't know who you want to be in the future, it literally doesn't matter what you do today. Like, you could literally spend all your time on YouTube because you don't really have a goal. So these tests can stunt your growth and they ultimately lead you to having a fixed mindset about yourself. There's a lot of other problems, but I'll stop at that point. You're right. I remember I took the test oh, like years ago and I remember the first letter, you know, it was like I or E. And I had got an I and it said that I was an, an introvert. And for years, I never wanted to interact with other people because I thought, oh, well, this test told me that this is how I am and I believe it. 
Like, for instance, I, I wouldn't do this podcast at first back oh, then because totally. uh, it didn't make sense. You should be really weary of what you believe about yourself. Right. Now, you also said it can set your growth. So let's talk about goals. Why are goals so fundamental to identity? Your identity really is based on your goals. Like at some point or another, you decide you want to do a podcast. And so like that started to become how you viewed yourself. And so like whatever you're pursuing right now is kind of how is is a huge driving aspect of your identity. A big challenge is, is that people either aren't clear on what they want or their goals came from they don't know why they chose what they're pursuing. In the book, I actually tell a story about a guy named Andre Norman, who ended up serving in prison for 14 years, and then he got out and went to Harvard. He grew up in the hood of Boston, and basically, you know, he was around a bunch of thugs, but he had a teacher who saw some potential in him, like a sixth grade teacher. And so she kind of helped him get into the trumpet. He was, she was a band teacher, and so he started playing the trumpet. And the only reason he really cared is because his teacher cared about him. Every one of his other teachers thought he was like a, a lame dirtbag, you know? Right. So he started playing the trumpet and he kind of started to like it. And it kind of became a sense of purpose for him. Like, even though he was still surrounded by, you know, in the hood, like he really liked the trumpet and he thought this could be something he could do in the future. So he started to have the trumpet became a, became an aspect of his identity. And when you have something that's meaningful to you and gives you a sense of purpose, that's focused on the future. You know, the future is always based on your purpose and that gives you meaning in the present. But one thing that changed for Andre was is that when he was in junior high, he went to a new school and he was in a new group of friends, still surrounded by the thugs. And they told him that he couldn't carry that trumpet around because it was kind of like embarrassing. They said, if you carry that stupid black box, you can't hang out with us. Sounds like wow. something some kids would say in junior high. <laughs> right. <laughs> but ultimately, he decided to throw the trumpet away because he wanted to fit in with his friends. And when he did that, he told me he lost his sense of purpose. Like when he threw his trumpet away, he lost his purpose. As a result, he stopped going to school. And because that stopped being his purpose or his goal, his goal shifted. And his goal then became to really fit in with his friends, which ended up becoming to be a criminal. So his goal shifted and then his identity shifted. So your identity follows your goals. And obviously what happens with your identity is your identity leads to the behaviors you go through and then your behaviors ultimately become your personality. So ultimately he became quite a criminal person. So your identity is kind of how you see yourself and define yourself. And it's generally based upon what you want for yourself. And your behavior comes from your identity. And then over time, that becomes your personality. You become the type of person that you consistently act as. So he became a criminal, went to prison. Turns out there's a hierarchy in prison. And so he wanted to get to the top. So that became his goal, which further shaped his identity as this totally like criminal killer. He ended up in solitary confinement. And he was about to kill a bunch of people. And he had an aha a moment. He had an epiphany, like several years into all this, that his goal was a terrible goal. Like it dawned on him that if he became the number one guy in prison, that's not really that worthy of an end. Like, what does that mean when he gets there? You know, I think that that's a kind of a good question. There's a good, there's a quote from Stephen Covey. And he says, sometimes we find that once we've been climbing the, you know, the ladder of success, we realize it's been leaning against the wrong wall. <laughs> you know, like for him, he, he kind of came to the conclusion that, okay, this thing he's been building his life around, he actually calls it his Wizard of Oz moment because he said that he realized that he's been on the yellow brick road for like several years. And at the end of the yellow brick road, there is no wizard of Oz. It's all a hoax. I like that. So he kind of came to the conclusion that his end goal, which has been shaping his whole life, or at least the last several years is a, a stupid goal. Like, and I think that that's a good conclusion that sometimes we can come to is maybe we're pursuing the wrong thing. Maybe we've built our identity around the wrong thing. So ultimately he decided he wanted to get out and he wanted to become successful. And hilariously with him, 
he kind of determined he had to go to college because from his perspective, just getting out of prison wasn't enough. 75% of people who go to prison go right back in. So he changed the goal. He said, I want to become successful. And from his perspective at the time, you got to go to college to be successful. And growing up in the hood of Boston, he'd only heard of one college and it was called Harvard. And so he made that his goal. And then he shaped his identity around that. It took him six years to get out of prison from there, but he was building his life around that goal. He learned how to read, write. He went to therapy, you know, like, and ultimately he got out. And then I think it took him another like 10 or 12 years or something like that to eventually become a fellow at Harvard. And he got his own office there and he's done speeches and stuff. But Andre Norman's got a crazy story, but it just proves that every time you choose a goal, that goal determines your identity, which eventually becomes your personality. That is an awesome story. The kind of you said that your environment impacts your personality, right? Of course. Huge, dude. Huge. And it seemed like, you know, with him being in Boston in the hood around all of those thugs, that that environment, it created this this personality form, which put him on that yellow brick road, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest predictors of personality is your social group. You know, they've studied this intensely. You know, like, you know, your social group predicts how well you'll do in school. Like, whether you're going to be an alcoholic, whether you're going to be an entrepreneur, whether you're going to be religious, like you become who you surround yourself by. And a lot of people, they just haven't been that intentional about that. Like you really want to start with your future self. Who's the person you want to be and then build your environment to support that identity rather than staying so committed to the person you've been or be, or become your future self is actually more important than who you've been in the past or even who you are in the present. And your future self, the person you genuinely want to become should be the thing that dictates your environment. What are some of the effective ways to redesigning your environment? You have to kind of, first off, know what, one of the concepts I talk about in the book is selective ignorance or strategic ignorance. You want to be unaware of a lot of things that are ultimately distractions. Like your brain can only handle so much. We call it decision fatigue in psychology, but like you don't want to, to fill your brain with stuff that's ultimately distractions to what you're trying to accomplish. So like you want to be selectively or strategically ignorant of most of the stuff out there, just because there's a lot of stuff out there doesn't mean you need it into your brain. So, you know, I I tell the story of Peter Diamandis who chooses not to watch mainstream media, like mainstream news, because from his perspective, it just, it's all fear-based and like, he's a futurist, Peter Diamandis. And so he gets his, he, he, he needs to know current events, but he doesn't get, he's, he's ignorant of what most of the people are saying because it's kind of garbage information anyways. Mm-hmm. So it's just literally knowing what not to be aware of because you know, it's just, there's aspects of the environment out there that just aren't helpful, many things. And so you want to choose to just not be informed about certain things or unaware. You want to like literally create an environment that shields you from either various people or information. Seth Godin is another example. Seth Godin is a famous business author. And he talks about how when he, he used to read people's comments on Amazon about his books and it would always like just destroy him because like a lot of the people, like there'd be a lot of trolls on the internet and they would really like try to just destroy his confidence. They say really rude things about him and his books. And like, he just decided at some point that he just shouldn't read the comments. Like he just didn't need to be aware of it. You know? So I think uh, one thing is just, what do you want to be not aware of like another way of looking at this is is if you remove the option you don't have to think about it so like if you're trying to quit smoking you have to like remove the people and even the cigarettes from your environment like if you're trying to just be on a diet rather than having a bunch of like soda pop in your fridge you need to remove it you need you know if you remove it then you don't have to think about it and you don't have to 
go through the decision fatigue where you're like, should I drink it? Should I not drink it? Like if you remove it, the option, then you don't have to think about it anymore. If you don't have to think about it anymore, you don't have to burn out your willpower. And if you don't burn out your willpower, then you're probably going to make better decisions. So removing the option is kind of a key to, to environment. The other one is strategic remembrance. The idea of creating an environment that reminds you of your future self. So this could be, as an example, having reminders go off on your phone to, to say like, you know, tell your wife you love her or pick up flowers on the way home. Like, I mean, you could, you can set reminders or you can, and also this could include the people you're with and also like the art you put on your wall. You could put quotes on your wall as an example, obviously putting your goals in front of your face regularly. Like you can create an environment that reminds you of your future self so that you're not forgetting because it's easy to forget in the busyness of the day. There's a lot of others I go into in the book. The whole book, Willpower Doesn't Work, actually is about environment design, but those will be a few that I'll give you for now. And I remember in the book talking about decision fatigue, there was a part where you said that unknowns are, are not good for willpower. Well, so it's, it's the idea that if you don't know what, what the outcome of your behavior is going to be, you're probably going to fail. So for example, like if you're not totally committed to a goal, like let's just say you're not totally committed to a diet. So like Clayton Christensen, the Harvard business professor, he said 100% is easier than 98%. Because if you're only 98%, then you don't actually know what, what the outcome is going to be. So like if you go to a party, you know, or like a wedding or something and there's dessert served, you don't know what the outcome is going to actually be if you're only 98% committed. Like you don't know if this is one of those times when you're actually going to eat the dessert. And so like that's bad for willpower because when you get into the environment, then you have to make a new decision in that environment. That's called decision fatigue. And chances are the environment's going to win. Your willpower is going to lose. And as a result, your confidence is going to plummet. And your identity is going to be confused. You're not going to actually be clear that you're committed to your future self. And instead, you're going to be like, maybe I can't do this. So it's a lot easier to just make the decision and eliminate the option. So that next time you're in that situation, for example, you know, and I'm just using diet as an example, you can apply right. it to anything, but you already know that the answer is going to be no. You already know that you're not going to eat it because you've already made that decision beforehand. So you don't have to deal with decision fatigue anymore. All you have to do is say no, because you already know that that's the answer and you don't have to deal with willpower. And as a result, that's how you build confidence. You watch yourself follow through and that gives you greater confidence in your future that you can keep going. Awesome. And I don't want you to give too much away, but what do you want people to get from your book? The primary thing I want people to get from the book is, is that the past doesn't need to be the guiding force in their life. They don't have to be defined by the past and the past doesn't need to be the thing that predicts their future. Your personality also obviously isn't something that you should build your whole life around. Instead, you should you should find who you really want to be and have a big sense of purpose. And that purpose should be the thing predicting and guiding your daily life. You know, that's the thing that should be guiding who you are, your future self and who you want to become. So that's kind of the main thing I want people to get out of this is that they don't have to be stuck in the past and that they can start living differently. Yes, it takes courage. Yes, it takes intention. Yes, you know, you're gonna have to go out, out of your comfort zone. Your personality is basically your comfort zone. So to be someone different, is gonna have to be to step out of your comfort zone. But that's how you build flexibility. That's how you learn and grow as a person. That's how you shatter, you know, your faulty fixed mindset. It's you, you're a great example. You know, you've formerly defined yourself as an introvert. Now you're doing a podcast. Like every time you do this, you're, you're becoming more flexible and open as a person, you know, and, and we can all do that. We don't have to just live in ruts. So that's kind of what I want people to get from this book. I love that. No, we don't have to be what our past is. And I do kind of want to, should focus real quick and, and ask you because um, I'm a twin 
And I know that after you adopted your three kids, you guys had twins right afterwards. So that's how, freaking how, awesome, dude. <laughs> yeah. So uh, how is it raising twins? It's awesome. Yeah, they're uh, 16 months old now and maybe even getting close to 17. And yeah, just two twin girls, totally non-identical. You know, one's got long brown hair. The other one's pr- pretty much bald with white, you know, white super cute little girls. We actually, before COVID-19, we had them doing swimming lessons because, you know, in Florida, a lot of people have swimming pools. So we didn't want them to fall in the pool, obviously. So we were having them do swimming lessons. And it's pretty amazing if you're watching little kids, like, you know, they didn't want to swim as an example. It's like very frustrating and annoying and scary for them to go through these swimming lessons. But like, that's how they grow as people. And I think that's why we as adults stop learning so much is because we stop putting ourselves through such difficult learning. It's, I mean, it's crazy watching them get put in the pool and like going underwater and kind of freaking out and having to learn how to do this thing. But that's how you build flexibility. So it's fun though, man. The twins are great. I mean, super cute, man. So are you, is it, was it you and do you have a brother or is it a twin sister? It's my brother. Everybody thinks we're identical, but technically since we came into different eggs, we're fraternal. Uh, but you guys look quite a bit alike. Yeah. If you don't really know us, you really can't tell us apart. Wow. That's but, amazing, um, dude. Yeah. It's really cool. And I talked to him recently and I told him we can't, just like your book, we can't live in the past. And just like Andre, he's in prison right now for a DUI. He's looking for things to read. Man, I've read about you. I'm like, dang, his book will be for somebody like my brother or anybody that just, you know, they, they don't want to live in the past. So I hope your brother can get to it, man. And I hope, uh, I hope he enjoys it. I hope it helps him. Oh, yeah. He's going to get to it because I'm going to give it to him. <laughs> but, it's freaking um, awesome, dude. Yeah. But uh, so if people want to know more about you and, and to get the book, where can they go? I would go to BenjaminHardy.com. That's my website. And obviously, you can buy the book anywhere. You can buy it on Amazon and stuff like that. But on BenjaminHardy.com, they can get three free online courses where I take them deeper into the book. Uh, and I also teach, you know, blogging strategies for anyone who wants to create content. My blogs have been read over a hundred million times. So like I, I show people how to do that. So yeah, BenjaminHari.com is I think where people can learn more. Also, all my blogs are there. All right. Well, I definitely appreciate it. And you're an amazing person. And thanks for coming. Dude, a huge pleasure, man. Have an amazing day. You do the same. All right. Appreciate it. See you, James. All right. That was Dr. Benjamin Hardy. Please go to BenjaminHardy.com to learn more about him and all of the awesome stuff that he has done. And please buy your copy of Personality Isn't Permanent. I want to thank you, Dr. Hardy, for that amazing interview and sharing that story of Andre Norman. It was just incredible. And yes, I went and looked. The Enneagram has nine different types. Thank you, everyone, for listening and hope you all join me next week. We will have another great person that will tell us about her business. And for now, please like and subscribe to the show and get out there and let your voice be heard. Thanks for listening to Blair Radio, where we turn your online whispers into screams. Learn more at theblairgroup.com. Until next time, be heard.